a science story, huh? These NYU scientists, they I felt, felt right. I was so and I just thought, well, I figured it, out. it was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. everyone, welcome to The Story Clutter, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I'm your host, Misha Gajewski, and this week our stories are all about feeling like the odd person out. I don't know anyone who hasn't at some point felt like they didn't belong somewhere, whether it be when you were a kid trying to fit in at school, or that time you tried to order an oat milk latte in rural Italy and they looked at you like you were an alien. I may or may not be speaking from personal experience on that one. Or maybe you were an emo teenager like me and felt like no one understood you, especially not your parents. Ugh. Gosh. Or maybe you sometimes still feel like an outsider, even now. For me, I always feel the most out of place at a golf course. I've always been the type of person who feels at home in a pair of jeans. But when you go to a golf course, there are all these rules about what you can and can't wear. Jeans being one of those things you absolutely cannot wear. So I always feel like I'm playing dress up when I'm invited to a golf course for whatever reason, because inevitably I've had a meltdown about what I could or couldn't get away with clothing wise. And I end up wearing a stupid dress and I don't know how to sit properly. And I just like everyone is probably staring at me because I'm not acting like I should at a golf course and they all know I shouldn't be there. And someone's totally going to come up to me any second and ask me to leave because my outfit isn't a golf course approved outfit. And it's just really stressful, you know? Anyways, our first storyteller, Kevin Allison, also had some trouble picking out an outfit. His story was told in July this year at Caveat in New York City. The theme that night was sliding doors. Okay. All right. Let's see. It was a Tuesday afternoon in 2019, and I was trying to focus on the emails that were coming in to my podcast. And I click on one, and it said, Hey, Kev, a uh, longtime listener. Uh, I love that story you told this week about how your brain works, but dude, do you not know you have ADHD? <laughs> I laughed, but then my attention was suddenly pulled to my phone, and I decided to text my friend Smith, who I had known for 30 years. I said, this is so funny, Smith, this guy just wrote to me. He said, don't you know you have ADHD? And my friend Smith wrote back, Kevin, you don't know that? So I went to a shrink. Dr. Adler had me fill out this epic questionnaire, and then he sat down with me and he said, hmm, says here you have four siblings. You have any nicknames from them when you were a kid? And I said, yeah, Space Cadet and Spaz. And he said, well, there's your two archetypes. <laughs> I laughed, he didn't. He said, listen, <clears throat> You don't know how your lack of understanding of ADHD has affected you yet. But the more you learn, the more you'll know. And you'll learn how other people's lack of understanding of ADHD 
has affected you. So I went right to a bookstore, driven to distraction, smart but scattered, and my favorite, you mean I'm not stupid and crazy? <laughs> what I learned is that people with ADHD do not have a deficit of attention. We have laser focus. It's just we can't aim it at shit we're not interested in, right? We can become really invested in stuff that really gets to us and really just cannot focus on stuff we don't like. So I started going through some of my old journals to look at my childhood and I came on one and just saw four words scrawled in it. It said soccer practice, cold day and i thought oh god yeah that day in 1980 i was 10 years old and in cincinnati ohio somehow you know back then there just weren't things like glee clubs you know like like Elementary schools didn't have anything like musical theater programs, you know? Kids could be interested in sports, sports, or sports. I wasn't interested in sports, but I was laser focused on theater. I would go to the library and get all the original cast albums, and then when I had done listening through them, I'd go take a bus to the next library. Well, one day, I'm locked down in the basement, and I'm Sweeney Todd. I'm playing the stereo, and I'm swinging an imaginary razor blade through the air. I'm just filled with all this righteous rage, letting all that drama out, singing, they all deserve to die. <laughs> and I turn around, and there's my older brother, Peter, and he's looking at me, with this look I know so well, like I'm a complete and total freak. I ripped the needle off the record and said, what? He said, wow, a real Hamlet here. And then he ran upstairs and started yelling to my brothers and sisters, Hamlet's downstairs. Now, was I thinking, gee, how astute. Hamlet was too sensitive for executive functioning in a competitive world. No, I knew what he meant. He meant, I'm a drama queen. So I hit the floor and I said, Kevin, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. God damn it, I've gotta find a way not to be so much me. I've got to try to be more like other boys. So I sent the records back to the library and I signed up that week for sports. Specifically, the fifth grade soccer team. Now, it wasn't just the competitiveness of sports that was nerve wracking for me. It was just that I couldn't keep my eye on the ball, you know? I'd be out there watching the sunset and singing the ladies who lunch to myself. And the other guys were always yelling at me, Allison, 
get your head in the game. That's because our coach, Mr. Becker, was always screaming at me, Allison, get your head in the game. Now, Mr. Becker, whew, this guy was a real bully. I had joined to get away from bullying. But this guy was just always making fun of some kid, like, look at this little fruitcake, and oh, did you wet your panties, little girl? His son, Mike, was the smallest, weakest little kid on the team, and I always felt so bad for him to have a dad like that. Well, one day, he just launched into a screaming fit. He pulled this one kid aside who had a long sleeve shirt on, and he said, how many times have I told you boys, never, ever should anyone be wearing anything to any soccer practice other than your short sleeve shirt, your St. Kate shorts, your tube socks, your cleats, and your shin guards. If I ever see anyone wearing any other article of clothing between now and the end of the season, you're off the team, no exceptions. And he kept repeating it over and over, the five things we were allowed to wear to practice and nothing else. And then he stormed off. I was like, my God, Mr. Becker's insane. Well, a week passed and it was time for practice again, but there was a cold snap that day and a really, really bitter cold snap. Now, I loved when practice was canceled, so I was waiting by the phone, but no one called. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, we're gonna have practice today in this cold, and we have to wear that goddamn dress code he went over and over and over and over with us last week? So, I put on my cleats, my shin guards, my tube socks, my St. Kate shorts, and my short sleeve shirt, and I went out into the cold. It was a six block walk to practice and most of it was uphill. And man, oh man, there were tears coming down my cheeks and freezing in the process. By the time I get to the field, I can see a little huddle there. And I'm like, there they are in their long johns and their sweatpants. Some of them even had hats and gloves. And as I'm approaching, I know that most of them could see I'd been crying. Well, Mr. Becker, his jaw dropped. And there was that look again, looking at me like I'm a total freak. He said, Allison, what could you possibly have been thinking, showing up to practice today, dressed like that. I said, because at the last practice, you said that under no circumstances were there any excuses ever for ever showing up in anything but this? And he said, yeah, but did you happen to notice? Today, it's cold. And everyone burst out laughing at me. And he said, why don't you go home, my very interesting little friend? Well, a couple weeks ago, 
I saw a thread on Twitter and had a eureka moment where I finally felt like I understood what had happened that day. This was an ADHD coach, and she was explaining that there's a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate cortex that suppresses most of the brain's natural reactions to things in most people. But for people with ADHD, the anterior cingulate cortex is just shut off in that way. So we just have lots and lots and lots of natural, pure brain reactions to things without any filtering. So when someone with ADHD is really interested in something, they can be a little overdramatic about it. And when they're not interested in something, it can be like torture. She then went on to say this, and this was the eureka moment for me. She said, there are very real consequences for behaving in ways that the majority find different. They won't tell you. They'll just exclude you. And this creeping sense of exclusion haunts most people with ADHD. In other words, they'll laugh at you for being out of the loop after they left you out of the loop. So, that's what happened that day. I thought back on it and I thought, oh my gosh, surely there were phone calls that went around. You know, Mike, little Mike, the coach's son, he was always so worried about being so little and the weakest player that he was always trying to act tough and cool and he was always trying to get in with the biggest jocks on the team. So he was always on the phone with them, giving them the behind the scenes scoop of what was really going on on the team. So surely he called some guys and they called their buddies to say, hey, you know that huge speech about we absolutely can't wear anything but these five things? I mean, come on, not today. I was just out of the loop. So I hope that understanding ADHD is helping me cope a little bit more. And I hope that sharing about it, I can help other people understand it a little bit better too. But I will say, it's not like I have no impulse control. I have successfully suppressed some crucial information just to get along in this world at various points in my life. For example, Mr. Becker, if you're listening, a few years later in high school, I slept with your son. <laughs> Thank you. That was Kevin Allison. Kevin Allison is the creator and host of the live show and podcast, Risk. He is also the editor of the book, Risk, and the founder of The Story Studio. Kevin is a member of the sketch comedy troupe, The State, known for their hit series on MTV. And he's also appeared in a number of TV shows and movies. Before we continue with today's episode, a couple of reminders. We want to hear from you, so please participate in our audience survey. We want to get to know you better and find out what you'd like to hear more of and less of on the podcast. 
Plus, anyone who fills out this survey is entered to win a Story Collider hoodie. And let me tell you, it's super comfy. To take the survey, please visit storycollider.org. If you're in the Chicago area, we have a show coming up on August 22nd. You can check out storycollider.org shows to get tickets to our upcoming September shows. We have shows coming up in New York City, Toronto, St. Louis, and more. Also, side note, can you believe it's almost September? Where did the summer go? Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about how to tell a science story, check out storycollider.org education. We offer private workshops both online and in person for groups, and we offer public courses for individuals online as well. For more updates and cool behind-the-story pictures and other awesome content, you should totally follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. Find us at Story Collider. And finally, if you're a fan of this podcast, and if you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to reveal the humanity behind science, to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, please consider donating to the Story Collider at storycollider.org donate. You can also sign up to support us on a monthly basis at patreon.com slash the Story Collider. Our Patreon supporters can receive an ad-free version of this podcast, as well as occasional bonus episodes and other gifts. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make our work possible. Our second story is from Diana Lee. It was performed at Caveat in New York City in August 2022. The theme that night was Clash. So I'm here to say that there is a question that I dread most. Where are you from? Thank you for that, that <laughs> Paul on the audience. And I have a really rehearsed answer by now. I say, well, Virginia, but I was born in New Jersey. Wink, wink, as you now just found out. And that often gets interrupted with, no, 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 but where are you from, from? And yes, for a while in my life, I did push my Asianness to the side. I perfected my English at the expense of my Chinese, all in an attempt to camouflage into white American society. Because I figured if I didn't focus on my race, no one else would. And that would open up room for people to appreciate me for my other, what I thought were more important qualities and interests. Diana's very sarcastic. She's funny. She's smart. She plays cello great. And for some strange reason, She's really, really, really into squids. <laughs> and I can't tell you why I like squids so much. I think they're so cool, even after an entire PhD on the topic. And the moment in college when I learned that I could go to a thing called graduate school, where someone would pay me money just to learn about squids, I was sold. So I went and found a lab, joined them, got into a program, and that took me for the next three of my six summers to a small industrial fishing town in Mexico called Santa Rosalia. Now, I had no clue what to expect going to Santa Rosalia. I only knew two things. The first thing was, well, if you want to study squids, you have to go to where they are. And one of the species that this lab studied was the Humboldt squid, which is usually found really far out in the ocean, usually quite deep as well. But Santa Rosalia was a special place because there, the squids were found really close to shore. It's like a marine biologist's dream come true. And the other thing I knew, because I'm very smart, is Santa Rosalia is in Mexico. And in Mexico, the language is Spanish. And Spanish is something I'd never learned before. So I was very nervous. And maybe you can tell, maybe you can't tell. I'm an introvert. 
And the idea of not being able to privately practice a language in the classroom and learn all the grammar before going out in the real world made me even more nervous. And to be surrounded by strangers in a foreign country, I was very nervous. And I had to meet all of my lab mates all at once in the field for the first time. I was so nervous, I could have pooped my pants nervous. <laughs> but I held it together and made it past the three flights and one truck ride and another like weapons and drugs checkpoint and got to Santa Rosalia about halfway down the Baja Peninsula of Mexico. We were on the Gulf of California side, which meant we weren't on the Pacific side. And that meant it looked like a stunning, beautiful desert and was super humid. And every single mosquito found me at least once. <laughs> Relentless. But all of that melted into the background the moment we started getting squids. They were exactly the delight that I thought they would be. They were so cute. I had trouble decapitating my first one. I love them so much. <laughs> and each night, the lab would pile in to our nine foot long Livingston boat and motor out um, you know, along the coast. And we went and joined dozens of other small boats called pangas, which were captained by squid fishers in the city. And city, town, it's really a town. And um, we each had like a bright light bulb on our boat to attract the squids to the surface. And once we caught the few squids we needed, we just headed back in, but you could turn around and look back out at the Gulf and see the panga still out there like a string of golden holiday lights against the pitch black coastline. It's like one of my favorite memories to think about. But by week two, all the novelty had worn off and I started to feel really isolated. The only people I could talk to were my lab mates because they spoke English. And for some strange reason that I still can't figure out, all of the Russian that I studied in college just didn't come in handy in Mexico. Like, I knew I could say stuff like, hola, gracias, por favor. And I'd just open my mouth and say, privet, spasiba, pajalista. And it would have been better if I just kept silent. Plus, we were living in a motel, so we didn't have kitchens for cooking food. I mean, the restaurants and food carts were very delicious because I'm now that person that's like, well, tacos in the US. <laughs> but seven days in that first week straight of just red meat, I would say my stomach was feeling its own version of isolated. Not quite sick, but maybe homesick. And I knew I wasn't the only one to, you know, have poop issues, because we were all talking about in the, lab, in the lab, and like, if only I could nervous poop now, it would have solved all of my problems. So the lab tried a new strategy. They were like, yo, what about that Chinese restaurant that we saw, you know, every single day driving from the motel to the harbor? And I was like, oh, that place, the place on day one that I told you I would never go into because I grew up eating the best homemade authentic Chinese food. And I would never debase myself by going to this takeout place. I mean, would the owners even be Asian? I hadn't seen any Asian people in the town. What's Mexican Chinese food? I don't know, I had like no to low expectations. But I got outvoted because as I said, circumstances were very dire. <laughs> and we went. So we go and we order all this delightful veggies and rice and all the things that I'm familiar with. It arrives and it's actually not bad, it's not great. And the first thing that shocks me is that, oh, I guess it tastes just like regular takeout from the US because MSG should taste the same no matter where you cook it. The other thing as I was eating, I was getting like really emotional, feeling content with the food, happy, and maybe this word that can only describe it would be gratitude, like grateful for the first and only time in my life for westernized Chinese takeout. But anyway, I was so hungry, we ate all the food, and by the time we left, the only other people in the restaurant 
were sitting on the porch quietly eating. So I figured maybe they were the owners. And they had these mannerisms that betrayed to me this idea that maybe they could speak Chinese. So I decided to go find out. And in not so great Mandarin, trying my best, I asked them, 请问,你们说中文吗? And I got a blank stare. And then I panicked and just blurted out in English, so, so then do you speak Cantonese? And they responded and they said, si, in Spanish. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God, what on earth is happening? And I was also kind of stubborn by that point. I was like, I gotta find out. I tried again in Mandarin and asked, um, and this time their eyes lit up. Ah, sure, sure. And we were having a conversation. It was incredible, it was exhilarating. The only people in the town I had talked to besides my lab mate that entire time. And it was also terrifying because I was trying to divine the right words with my five-year-old comprehension of Mandarin Chinese in front of these fluent speakers. But eventually I told them a bit about where my family is from in China and that I'm from the US trying to study squids, but that just got translated into, I'm here to look at calamari. <laughs> and the owners of the restaurant told me, well, they're the only Chinese people in town. And they quickly followed that up with, we also own the only Chinese restaurant in town. And I was like, that's fine. I'll be very loyal to you. It's not like I can talk to anyone else in the town. <laughs> so later that night, back in the motel, I was trying to decompress from a very intense evening, trying to figure out why I did get so emotional just eating some fried rice from some you know, corner store, essentially. And I think back to growing up in the US and finding it really strange, not figuring out why my parents Whenever they ordered Chinese takeout, they would without fail each time eat the food and then immediately disparage the quality. <laughs> and I mean, maybe it's because they were tired of cooking. They would repeat this ritual about once a month. And now thinking maybe they got tired not of just cooking, but maybe when you have to be the one to create the sense of cultural belonging for yourself in a country that's not really made with you in mind, Either you gotta cook the food to get a taste of home, or you gotta just accept whatever version comes from the only Chinese restaurant in town and hope that it's good enough to bring you some comfort to the soul, the digestive system, and make you feel a little lost in a foreign land. So that restaurant in Santa Rosalia, Comida Beijing, became my new home base for meals. And it was great, I never even read their menu. I just went in and asked them to cook whatever I was craving, which was never to the same level as my mom's cooking, but it tasted just familiar enough. And it was really special because I started to feel a sense of belonging in a town where I was struggling to understand the culture and the language. Actually, over the next three years, I returned to Santa Rosalia a handful more times, and each time I always made sure to stop by Comida Beijing. And the owners always remembered me. You're back, they would explain. Does that mean the squids are here? And I even became Facebook friends with them until I deleted my Facebook, which is now meta. I don't know. And ironically, none of the data that I collected from all those trips to Mexico made it into my final PhD because it was just too hard to do good data collection. But the methods I used, I did apply, so it was useful. It was probably not a big surprise to you because of all those experiences. I'm just telling you about some food I ate one time. So I tried to ask my parents if my hypothesis about their Chinese takeout behavior was correct. And in the true immigrant way, they immediately dismissed my question as trivial and never answered it. <laughs> I mean, why would we dwell on emotions when I had tests to study for, they had bills to pay, and we all had American culture to assimilate into? And at the time, I was really bothered by them not answering this. And now I realize I don't care what their answer was, because 
the existence of the question started to help me figure out maybe a bit more about them, but a lot more about who I am as a person. I'm starting to realize that my heritage doesn't replace all those other qualities and interests I have. I mean, yes, that dreaded question is still my least favorite question. Please don't ever ask me that question. There's so much more to discuss, like squids. But even if you must know, and if I do get asked, I try not to get bothered so much because where I'm from and where I'm from from, there's just one of many facets that make me who I am. An Asian American scientist who once chased squids to Mexico, where she learned a bit of Spanish, a lot more Chinese, and a little bit about herself. That was Diana Lee. Diana Lee is a science communicator and educator. Inspired by a t-shirt with a squid on it that she bought at a Shins concert in the 11th grade, she went on to get her PhD from Stanford University, where she studied the neurophysiology and biomechanics of how squids swim. She now works at Columbia University's Mortimer B. Zuckerman Mind Brain Behavior Institute in New York City. There, she leads public engagement programs that share neuroscience with the local community. The Story Collider is so grateful to Kevin and Diana Lee for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by Aaron Barker, executive director and co-founder of The Story Collider, along with me, managing producer Misha Gajewski, and senior podcast editor Jen Chen, with help from education director Lily B. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including managing director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, and Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, without whom none of this would be possible. The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by Tracy Segarra and Tracy Rowland, and Christine Gentry and Fola Alusanya, respectively. Our theme music is by Ghost. Until next week, thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.